Hey y'all, this is Tommy. Today we are replaying my conversation from last summer with Kyle Petty. It felt like a good time to come back around to it for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're in the middle of the NASCAR playoffs. And second, Kyle just came out with a new book called Swerve or Die, Life at My Speed in the First Family of NASCAR Racing. As you'll hear, Kyle is game to try pretty much anything and also game to talk about it. Hope y'all enjoy this. I've always been that guy that I don't want to get to be, you know, 96 years old um, in, in the assisted living home. And everybody's kind of sitting around and somebody says, man, I had a chance to do this one time, but I didn't do it. I'm going to be that guy that says, when somebody says, you ever ride a bull? I'm going to raise my hand and I'm going to say, sure did. Sure did. You ever fly around the world? Sure did. I'm that guy that I just want to try things. Hey, y'all. I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Kyle Petty has seen all the rewards and all the costs of a life lived beyond the speed limit. Kyle's father, Richard Petty, is NASCAR's greatest winner. Kyle's son, Adam, was killed at age 19 in a wreck during a practice run at the track. In between, Kyle himself won eight races at NASCAR's highest level before retiring to a life of pursuing adventure all over the world. Now he's got a new TV talk show called Dinner Drive with Kyle Petty, where he talks to celebrities from Ric Flair to Pitbull. As part of a family that's been in the spotlight his whole life, Kyle Petty has had to do a lot of thinking about who he is. And his words might be helpful if you're trying to figure that out for yourself. Here's our conversation. Kyle Petty, I want to talk about your new show. I want to talk about racing, all that sort of thing. But first of all, you recently played the Grand Old Opry, and I want to hear about that. I know some people who are listening to this will know that you've played music for a long time, and others may not. What was it like playing the Opry? Um, intimidating, humbling, scary, nerve-wracking, every emotion you can, can have, plus joy, elation, um, I mean, so much. It, it was... Because I, I have to go back. Um, I've played music since I was 12. The first, the first two guys I ever saw play music was um, a, the preacher that came to the racetrack, the pra- traveling preacher that came to the, the cliched traveling preacher that came to the racetrack. His name was Bill Frazier. And um, he would stand up at the end of, of his sermon and play, play a song. And Marty Robbins. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. And Marty Robbins uh, drove a race car. Uh, a lot of people have forgotten that, but he drove a race car in the early, early 70s uh, and run some all the way through, through the 70s, really, and ran some Talladega, Daytona, Charlotte, places like that, run big races. Um, and Marty would sit by the pool and, and play the guitar sometimes. And I was 10, 11, 12 years old, and I was like, uh, to see Marty Robbins play a guitar, it was just like, oh, I got to do that. I got I to learn to play a guitar. So started taking guitar lessons. So music's always been, been a part of it. 
uh, part of who I am. Uh, but as soon as we started a high school band at Randleman, man, I was a saxophone player. I jumped in. I was in the marching band. I was a band geek. I love band, man. But um, it is it, it's just kind of evolved. And I've always written songs. Um, and recently I got got hooked back up with uh, Dolph Ramsour uh, from the Avett Brothers uh, and David Childers. Uh, from Mount Holly and David has helped me a lot. I've performed with him a lot and done a lot of stuff with him and continue to write. So uh, the opportunity came up with my new show, Dinner Drive with Kyle Petty, to be able to play the Opry. And I'm like, yeah, they're kidding, man. They're, they're not going to let this smuck on the Opry. You know what I mean? They're not going to let me walk out there. It was amazing to, you don't realize it. You go and, and I've taken the tour at the Opry and, and stood there before in, in the circle. You know, it's the circle from the Ryman where Patsy Cline and Hank Sr. and Minnie Pearl and, you know, Whisper and Bill and, and everybody, everybody has stood. Everybody that's played the Opry has stood right there. But when you walk out on that stage and there's three or 4,000 people and the lights are on and you've got an instrument in your hand and it's time for you to do the same thing um, and, and not embarrass the Opry, um, there's, there was a lot of pressure, but it was, it, it's honestly one of the top five, six, seven, greatest moments of my life. I read an interview with you where you said when you were racing, you used to sing in the car. Oh yeah. Now was that like to calm you down or was that to get you fired up? Or what, what was that about? There's always a tune in my head. I wake up in the morning, there's a song in my head. Uh, might not be a song anybody else knows, but it's a song I'm writing or, or something, but there's always a tune, there's always a rhythm and there's a rhythm to the day and there's a rhythm to life. Um, and to me, there's always music to that rhythm. Um, and, and I, I, man, I'll never forget, uh, you know, running Darlington and just singing this one song in my head over and over. And it just so happened that whatever, and I can't even remember what it was, but I remember that day that everything I did matched the rhythm of the song, whether it was letting off in the corner or dragging the brake, whatever it may, and it was just fascinating. And we had a decent day and I'm thinking, man, this is a good thing, man. This, this is really pretty cool. But, um, that's just the way I am. You, you know what I mean? It, it's a, it's, you know, when you get, when things get intense, you speed up the song. When things get kind of mellowed out, you, you kind of, kind of chill out a little bit and, and sing a little slower song. Now, it seemed like from reading some stuff about you, that there was a point maybe back in the eighties or whenever, when you really did try to figure out whether music would be a full-time career for you instead of racing. I mean, did it, did it come to that point for you? You know what? And that's a, that's a really good question because I think from the outside looking in, it looks like it, a lot of times it looks like, oh man, you know, he was, he was going, going down that music road. Um, and, and, but, but I think you have to go back when, okay. When I was four or five years old um, and I, you know, nailed two pieces of two by four together and put a straight axle across it and ride it down the hill. I wanted to be Richard Petty. I wanted to be Bobby Allison. I wanted to be David Pearson. I wanted to be the guys I saw at the racetracks on the weekend. That's what I wanted to do. That was my dream. My, my dream. When I dreamed at night, I dreamed of sitting in a seat and hanging onto the steering wheel uh, and racing those guys. Um, music, and I, I told people at the time, and I said the same thing. You know, Dale Earnhardt Sr., he'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and go sit in a deer stand. He'd get up and go turkey hunting. Um, a lot of those guys played golf. You know, they, they, they'd leave the racetrack in the afternoon and go play golf. That was music for me. That, that was music. Music was my deer stand. Music was my, my round of golf. I, I took a guitar with me everywhere I went. Um, the opportunity arose to go try and do some music. 
The next thing you know, man, I'm I'm out there beating it up and down the highway on a Friday and Saturday night, and then back at a racetrack on a on a Saturday or Sunday racing. Uh, and I got two jobs, and I never wanted at that time for music to be a job because it wasn't a job. It was it was an escape. It was it was the passion. It was what I loved. It was what helped me deal with the pressure uh, and and work around the pressure of, of driving a race car. So um, it kept building, building until you know it, it seemed that my racing was was kind of plateauing and wasn't really going the way I wanted it to, although I was only 23 or 24 years old, you know, at 23 or 24, you're already supposed to have like 14 championships and 200 wins like Richard Petty. I, I didn't, I couldn't understand that, but um, you know, you had to put one of them back up on the shelf. And the one that I had dreamed about being was a race car driver. So the music went back on the shelf and um, it didn't start again, really, even though I continued to play and write, I, I didn't continue start to play out. I'd go to the evening muse and play open mics and stuff like that. But didn't really start again until after I retired. So when I look up your name on Spotify, the first song I find is one of your songs. The second song is a song by Soundgarden. That until a few days ago, I didn't even know it existed. And I listened to a lot of Soundgarden back in the day. It's called Kyle Petty's Son of Richard. Faster than a flashlight. Yes, I, yes, I, I do, man. I, I, and you know what? Those guys were great guys. I met them a couple of times, had an opportunity. Um, and, you know, they were, they knew racing. You know, that, that's the funny, that is the funny thing to me as I travel and as I've met people uh, along the way is, hey, you know, yeah, you know, we, we know about NASCAR. My dad was a Richard Petty fan or my dad was a David Pearson fan or, you know, I grew up with it on, on the TVs on Sunday afternoons, no matter where they are in this country. Um, and and th- th- moments like that just stunned me because we're from Level Cross, North Carolina, where everybody had a farm. We just happened to raise race cars for, for a living. That's what we did. But you sometimes you don't you don't realize the reach uh, that 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 TV has and and that the sport has had. So I want to talk about racing just a little bit, but I want to ask about one part of it in particular. Maybe when you and your dad were both racing or maybe when you were too young and he was racing, there were a lot of tracks close by where I thought maybe you guys would just drive to the track for the weekend. Yes. And if that's true, I'm wondering what those rides were like. Maybe with just you and him or you and the family, you know, going to the track. What was that like? So when we were little, um, I have I have three sisters. Uh, Shan, uh, she's a year younger than I am. Lisa's five years younger, and then Rebecca is fourteen years younger than I am. So it was really basically Sharon and Lisa and, and myself. Uh, Rebecca came later, but uh, we'd pile in a station wagon uh, and we'd head up to North Wilkesboro. We'd pile in a station wagon. We'd head down to Rockingham or Darlington or or, or those places, you know. And and it, it's funny living in Level Cross, North Carolina at that time. There was Charlotte, Rockingham, Darlington, North Wilkesboro, Martinsville. There were five or six races that we we stayed at home. We never, my dad never stayed in a hotel. So out of a 30-some race schedule, a third or more of the races, he just, he slept in his own bed. Uh, and he said, that's why I always won races, because he didn't have to stay in a hotel. He was rested when he got there. But I, for us, those, those times were, those times were, were special times, um, because it was my mom, my dad, 
my family, um, you know, a bucket of KFC, some egg salad sandwiches, some homemade biscuits, uh, whatever it took, because we'd leave to go to the racetrack at 536 o'clock in the morning. We'd sleep on the way up there. Uh, and it was funny, and I do not say this in an arrogant way. I do not say this in an arrogant way. Uh, but my sisters and I would talk about where the trophy was going to set on the way home. Uh, because, because we won. So we always had a trophy in the car. It seemed like we always had a trophy in the car when we came back. There was always an extra person. You know what I mean? It was, and it was the trophy. Um, but those were cool. When I started working with my dad and traveling with the crew, then we just, we talked racing. We talked racing, what the day at the racetrack had been like, what practice had been like, um, you know, what we could do to get better, what my dad, what the car, Dale Inman, Wade Thornburg, those guys, what, what the car could do to get better. Um, and then when I started driving, you know, we, it was a mixed crew. It was my dad's crew and my crew. And, um, and it helped us because I learned stuff listening to those guys about what they were doing and what my dad was doing and listening to what he said. And, you know, the one thing and people that, that listen to this that are in a family business know that that family business also comes to Thanksgiving and to Christmas uh, and to birthday parties and to every holiday out there. That's part of it. So once I started driving, um, that's just what we talked about. In your new show, you call yourself, among other things, a speed enthusiast. And I'm wondering sort of now that you're not obviously a full-time racer anymore or anything like that, how do you satisfy that urge? We use that phrase because it's dinner drive. Uh, so it's about dinner and it's, or it's about driving. Um, but here's, here's more of what it, it's like. I'll, I'll break down that, that a little bit more. Um, I've always been that guy that I don't want to get to be, you know, 96 years old um, in, in the assisted living home. And everybody's kind of sitting around and somebody says, man, I had a chance to do this one time, but I didn't do it. I'm going to be that guy that says, when somebody says, you ever ride a bull? I'm going to raise my hand and I'm going to say, sure did. Sure did. You ever fly around the world? Sure did. Sure did. I've been there. Flew around on the Concorde. You ever ride a boat from Miami around the tip of Florida? Sure did. You know, did it in six hours, set a world record doing it. You know, I, I'm that guy that I just want to try things. And, you know, I, I want to, it's like the Grand Ole Opry. I had an opportunity. How can you turn that down? No matter what, how can you turn that down? Um, and and I and I've I think I got that from my mom more than anything else. We we come from small rural North Carolina, so to be exposed to a world that you can experience things and you're offered that opportunity because of the platform that you you grew up with and what you do for a living, don't turn it down, man. Don't turn it down. Um, give it a shot. Uh, we were sitting at Daytona one year, just kind of sitting around talking, and it rained, and we said, "Hey, let's go over to the land and jump out of an airplane." We rolled over to the land and tandem dumped and was back in an hour and a half and got back in the race cars and went back out. So it was like, that, that sounds cool, you know? So I think that's what it means. I, I still ride motorcycles. We do the Kyle Petty charity ride across America. We did it 25 years in a row before, uh, before the pandemic struck. Uh, we've put it off the last couple of years. We hope to be able to do something and, and, and bring that back. We've raised over $19 million for Victory Junction, which is the camp uh, that we built for, for an Adam's memory. Uh, when his accident happened, but the motorcycle, I have been a motorcycle man my whole life. Um, my dad got me my first motorcycle when I was five. So I will always have that opportunity to feel that need uh, on a motorcycle. Maybe it's not so much speed, but it's just the wind in your hair and the memories of being six or seven years old uh, that, that that motorcycle brings back. So you said, you mentioned earlier that answer that that was 
something you felt like you got more from your mom. So explain kind of why that is or what about her made you like that? You know, I think my mom, my dad had grown up already um, by the time my mom, by the time my dad um, and they and my mom married, my dad had already ex- been exposed to a lot of the outside world. Um, and, and what I mean by that, that they were already going to races. You know, my dad started, my granddad started in 49. So my dad had spent 10 or 11 years, you know, going to Bridgehampton, New York, going to Riverside, California, seeing the country. Um, my mom had lived her entire life in Randolph County um, and in, in basically uh, North Carolina. You know, she had never really ventured that far. Uh, so when we, when they got married and we started traveling, um, it, it's so funny that I remember being in the first, second, third grade, stuff like that. We'd go to Michigan and my mom would take us to the Henry Ford Museum and we would spend two days in the Henry Ford Museum uh, just looking at the history. Um, you know, when we went to Richmond, we would go around to the museums and, and look at the monuments and walk around and understand the history of what Richmond was and what it meant to the South. Uh, Stone Mountain. Uh, we went to the Hermitage. Uh, in Riverside, we would go places. In California, we would go places. The San Diego Zoo, we'd drive down to San Diego. You've already come 3,600 miles. What's another 200 miles to go to the San Diego Zoo? That was the way the way she thought about it. So for her, it was that exposure to the outside world. And we would come back to school and, you know, the teacher would start teaching on something. And it was like, you know, you didn't want to raise your hand and say, I've been there uh, because nobody else had been there. You know, we had just had that opportunity. And so I, I think I get that wanderlust and that travel and that that wanting to learn and wanting to to know and ask questions and and just that information. I just want I just want to know things um, and that inquisitiveness, I guess I get from her more than anything else, because once she was exposed to that in her early 20s, the outside world, she embraced it. You mentioned your son, Adam, just a second ago, and I know if I remember right, the other day, just a few days ago, was his birthday, right? Yes, sir. And I don't quite know how to ask this, but let me give it a try. It's been 21 years now since he passed. How does he sort of appear in your life? Are there things that you regularly do where that makes you think of him, or does he sort of come up at unexpected moments, or how does that sort of manifest itself? Both. And, and, and honestly, both. Um, and that's a great question. Um, because I, I think there are moments, I, I think there, and, and losing when, 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 when life goes out of order, um, you know, for, for me, when you're raised and, and you grow up, you see your grandparents pass away and then your parents, and then you become the grandparents and the parents. And, and that's, that's the life cycle, you know? Um, we're taught that in the Lion King, you know, that's, that's the life cycle. Sorry. Um, when that's thrown out of order, you, you have that jarring moment where you think, well, what else is not like I thought it was, was supposed to be? What else in the world that I've been taught from an early age is not exactly the same. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's moments that, that I question things. And as soon as I question him, I think about him. Yeah. I think about him. I'll be somewhere and I think I hear him call my name. Uh, you'll be in a crowd. I, I, I see him everywhere at a racetrack. Going to a racetrack is, is still to this day um, because that's where he would be. That's where he should be in, in my mind. And, and forever, he's 19 years old. 
You know, he's 19. He doesn't get any older. I get older. He doesn't get older. Um, and, and I think everybody's that way. And, and there's, there's moments I was, I was texting a friend of mine last night. Um, and he, his father had passed away a number of years ago on the, on the 9th uh, of July. Adam's birthday is, is, or his birthday, excuse me, was the 9th of July. Adam's birthday was the 10th. And I told him, I said, you know, you ever get those, sometimes you get those really sharp pains right in your heart. And, and it just, it's a biting pain. Um, and I said, you know, it's been 21 years and I still get those pains uh, a lot. And I said, but that's good because I know he's still there in my heart. And, and that's what that means to me. So, you know, there's moments that when you least expect it, I can be watching a movie and, um, and start thinking about him. Uh, I can be, you know, mowing the yard and something hits me and I start laughing about something that he did at some point in time. But I think everybody, everybody who has lost someone like that, a parent, a child, um, they have those moments, they have those moments um, and they'll have them their whole life. And, you know, if, if they do, I, I'm a firm believer that that just means that person's knocking on that heart door again and saying, I'm still here. I wonder if the nature of what your family for generations does and has done for a living changed or affected in any way the way that you process this. You guys have been in a life where every day your job involves basically risking your life. And I know you may not always see it that way, but that's certainly always underneath it and that there are risks involved that y'all have been willing to take over the years. Do you think that in any way helped to process that or made it harder or any of those things? If you had asked me that question before I met my wife, Morgan, um, I would have said no. I would have given you the answer, no, uh, honestly. But I think she has helped me understand so much more about maybe who I am um, and and how I process things. And because we were we 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 having conversations, you know, we were you know how you have conversations when you're getting to know someone, and 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 you know you're you you're laying your life out, uh, and they're laying their life out, and how they overlap, and you know, from, from the time I was a kid going to the racetrack in, in the sixties, uh, I remember going to, to Daytona and going to places. And just like I talked earlier, going with my sisters in, in, a, in, in a station, wagon. a lot of other families came the same way and all the families would park in the same place. And I remember going and, and playing with, with other kids, um, that were, their fathers were drivers and something would happen in the race. It'd be a caution. And those kids would leave and I would never see those kids again. And it was years later that I found out that their father had been killed in that race or that something had happened. Um, and when I was in high school, um, I had a friend, James McLean, when I was in, in junior high, seventh, eighth grade, he got hit by a car. Um, when I was 15, my uncle Randy, um, who was, who was my, mother's, my mother's only brother, he was only five years older than me. Um, and he was, he was killed on pit road during an accident at, at, at Talladega. And it was my mother's only, only, only brother. And, and I was just crushed because he was like my brother too. And, you know, and then you start driving and I see a kid get, get killed on pit road at Atlanta and you see drivers, um, who are in comas and, and, and get killed. And it's in a strange way, 
I'm telling some of these things and, and Morgan says, you know, you've had a lot of death in your life. And I think about it and, and it had been, but I didn't think about it that way before. I, I never thought about it. That was just part of my abnormal life growing up. You, you know what I mean? And I think with each, you, you, you begin to figure out how to deal with it. And you realize, and I realized early with Randy that yesterday I can't change. I can't, I can't change. I can't go back and change that. All I can do is make tomorrow better uh, and try to make tomorrow better. And when, when Adam's accident happened, you know, that was, that was the whole impetus for the camp was, you know, well, we had 19 great years with this kid and he was a phenomenal kid. You know, what can we do to keep that, keep that alive and keep that spirit alive? Uh, And that's where Victory Junction came from. But I think, yes, a lot of how I deal with with life and a lot of how I deal with with setbacks or things that happen have come from the exposure to so many things. Because ultimately, in my mind, as long as you can, as long as I can call you, Tommy, as long as I can call you and apologize for something I've said, make up for something I've done, try to make amends for a wrong, then we can go on. But if one of us is not here, that's where it stops. And that's what's always going to be remembered is that end point. Hey, this is Tommy. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Kyle Petty. So the first guest on this new show you have, Dinner with Kyle, is Dale Earnhardt Jr. And I've often thought that you two have sort of lives that rhymed a little bit. You know, you're the sons of the two most famous drivers in NASCAR. You both had to grow up, you know, dealing with that one way or another. And obviously you both lost people you deeply cared about at the track. Your son and, of course, Dale's dad. And I'm wondering whether you two have felt that connection over the years. If it's something you've talked a lot about, or is that something that you just sort of understood between each other? I think a little of both. I think a lot of it's understood. Um, His granddad, Ralph Earnhardt, drove drove a race car for my dad, my granddad, Lee. Um, And then... You know, my dad and, and his dad raced together and I raced against his dad and then I raced against him. And, you know, it's just we're it's intertwined. It's intertwined. Um, and, and I think there's 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 things, you know, and everything you, you have to go back to. And, and this is is one thing that really solidifies and brings our lives really close uh, or closer um, were the public deaths. Of, of his father and of Adam, um, because it's public grief. It's, it's, it's a public sharing 
of your deepest and, and, and darkest places and darkest days and your emotions. And, you know, when, when, and I've, I've told this story before where when, when Adam's accident happened, there were, were people that would come and say, man, I am so sorry. And, and, and then there were people that wouldn't talk to you because they didn't know what to say. And Daryl Earnhardt was a senior, was one of those guys that he would see me coming and turn and go the other way. He just, he just wouldn't talk to me. Um, and I understood that. I understood that. That's not a knock on Dale Sr. I just, I understood that because sometimes you just don't know what to say. So you don't say anything, but understand if you're listening, saying something means everything, just saying something, you know, you don't just say something. So we're in Daytona run the 24 hour race and it's, it's Dale and uh, Dale Jr. is driving one car and Dale and Dale Jr. are teammates and I'm driving another car. And we meet one night at two o'clock in the morning. We're walking back through the garage area to go take a nap before we have to get back in the cars again. And I was bound and determined I'm not going to let you slide this time. So I went up and put my arm around him and we both stood there and all but just broke down um, because he said, I don't, I don't know what to say. I have a son. I have a son that I love. I have a son that, that means everything to me. And I can't imagine that. And I said, it's good. It's good, man. I, I do understand. I want you to know I understood. And we sat outside his motor coach and talked for a couple hours. And, and, you know, I think for, for Dale Jr. When it happened, then he's thrust back out the next week in front of, you know, 70 some million fans. And you've got to go back and get back up on that horse and go again. And that's the same way I was. Well, one of the things I know from talking to him was he, he talked a lot about his rebellious phase when he was a teenager, early 20s. You know, he bleached his hair and he had basically built this nightclub in his basement, the, the famous Club E. Did you have that sort of phase for you? I, I don't think it was public, at least not to my knowledge, but I'm wondering how you might have rebelled when you were that age. Honestly, when I came along in the, and if you go back to the, to the, um, to the late seventies, early eighties, when I came along and started doing this. And when you can't come to the, to the mid to late nineties, when Earnhardt, uh, the, 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 the lens on the sport was a lot greater. Uh, the magnification of everything that went on was a lot greater. So it, the spotlight was a lot more intense on him. Um, but you know what, here's, here's the funny part. I, I think I was, I, and I was told this my whole life. From, from my dad um, is be you, be who you are. Don't be me. You know what I mean? And I think he was told that from his, his, his dad, um, my granddad. And I've said this, if you, if, if today, if we were able to stand my granddad, my dad, myself and Adam, um, and we stood shoulder to shoulder and you ask us the same question, you get four different answers uh, because we were four different people. You know, that Jeff Gordon, Dale Sr., Dale Jr. era, you know, it's considered sort of the peak for NASCAR in terms of public interest. And it feels like, at least from the outside, it's tailed off to the point where probably the average person who's not a big sports fan could not name any NASCAR drivers. And it used to be at the point, you know, where Jeff Gordon, Dale Sr., Richard, you know, you, Dale Jr., would have all been at least known to the casual fan. I know you've been asked this a million times in different contexts, but what can NASCAR do at this point? You know what? I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, I, I think that it, it, there is a, it, it's that, it's that if we go back 
Okay. And, and if we go back to, to my dad and Pearson and Bobby and Donnie and all those guys, you know, they were just that guy next door, man. They, they were that guy that, you know, grew up in rural America or running a local dirt track and ah, man, they're Daytona 500 champions. You know, they, here they are on wide world of sports. We get to see them for two and a half minutes on a Saturday in between lacrosse and ski jumping. You know what I mean? That, that kind of thing. So you know, that, that was that. And that's what connected you to that guys, Earnhardt and, and Mark Martin and Rusty and those guys came along and, you know, Mark and Rusty out of the Midwest and Alan Kowicki and those guys, and they brought that fan base with them. And, and, you know, because that was that guy they saw run at, at lacrosse, Wisconsin or at Slinger, Wisconsin, and, you know, out in Arkansas. And here they are running at Daytona and at Charlotte and places like that. These, these guys that come along now, um, they come a different route. They come through eye racing. Um, they come through, you know, and, and, and this is not a knock. So please don't take it this way. They're, they have, they they come from a wealthy family or a family with sponsors who are able to, to put them in a seat. Um, and it's not always about the most talented to get here anymore. And, and I think that has rubbed some race fans wrong, the core race fans wrong. I will say that. And what happens is you get a, a, a changeover. Um, where, you know, a guy comes in for four or five years and then he's gone. A guy comes in for four or five. It's, it's almost like other professional sports, unless you're Aaron Rodgers or, or Tom Brady and you stay 45 years, then you become that guy. You know what I mean? Or unless you do spectacular stuff and, you know, it, it's tough on these guys. It's, it's a lot tougher. It, it's a double-edged short sword, man. You jump into the sport. If you don't do something in the first couple of years, you're out and you're not going to get a second chance. That's not the way it was and not the way it used to be. You mentioned second chances in there, and, and you are having a second chance at fatherhood. You had three kids earlier, right? Now you've had two more, including one who I think is not even a year old, and you're 61. So I'm, I'm a little younger than you, and I feel like some days I can barely get out of bed every morning. I'm wondering what it's like to chase around a one-year-old. You know what, I, I have to tell you, Tommy, it's, it is the greatest thing in the world. Uh, I think the, 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 I said a minute ago that, that probably, you know, um, playing the Opry was the top five or six, seven moment. Um, meeting Morgan and marrying Morgan is, is top moment. It, she changed my life in so many ways, uh, just in, in so many ways. But having Overton, our first son, who's three years old now, um, and then, then Cotton, uh, as our, as our youngest, it's fascinating. It is fascinating to be, to be my age and to have kids this age and to be in a different place in life. And, and, you know, sometimes I think we're a, a lot of parents that are listening, a lot of people that are out there, you know, when you're in your early to twenties, the mid twenties to early thirties, you know what? You get up every morning, you go to work, you bust your rear end to make a better life for your family, to make a better life for your kids so that they have things that, that you dream of and that you want for them. That college education, you're, you're busting your, your rear end to save money. That vacation, you're busting your rear end to make a living. Um, and, and I think you get to the place in life that I am now and it, it's not about that, it's about time. It's about time, it's about spending moments. It's about being on the floor and playing Hot Wheels cars for for four hours straight. You know what I mean? 
It, it's about walks in the afternoon. It's about golf cart rides. It's about painting. Um, and it's just about spending time with Morgan and with Cotton and, and, and Overton. Um, and, and I'm very blessed to be in that place in life where I can do that. So you mentioned back in the beginning that you want to be the guy that always raised your hand when somebody said, did you do this? Did you do that? Or whatever. I think you've probably crossed off more bucket list type items than most of us. So have you got any left? Are there other things that, that you're just dying to do? I don't, I don't know if there's things I'm just dying to do. Um, but there's things, you know, you know, I've, I, when we started the Kyle Petty charity ride, because honestly, I wanted to ride motorcycles uh, from California to, to North Carolina. Uh, I mean, I, I grew up watching then came Bronson, uh, you know what I mean? So, I, and he rode around on that little motorcycle with that beanie hat on. And I'm thinking that's the coolest guy in the world, man. So, and we had guys that worked at the race shops that, that rode Harleys. And I'm like, man, they were the coolest guys in the world. That's what I want to do. Um, so I, I think, you know, I want to ride I, I, at some point in time in my life, I want to ride the border of the United States all the way around the closest roads to the border, just all the way around. There's things like that, that yes, that, that I still want to do. Uh, but you know what? I, I want to, I want to celebrate birthdays with, with Overton and Cotton and, and with Morgan. I want to celebrate Christmases with my dad and, and my family. You know, I went to the beach this weekend with my sister and spend more time with, with them. And I, I think I'm in that, that place. Um, now if something comes along and somebody calls up and says, Hey, uh, you want to ride a motorcycle in the ball of death? Yes, I'm in. That's one thing I've always wanted to do too. You know, the barrel where you ride along on the walls of the barrel or yeah, and the circus thing. I want to do that. I've wanted to do that since I was 30 years old, and I'm looking for somebody to teach me how to do that. I just want to say I've done that, and I know I'm going to end up on the ground at some point in time, but there's, I, I will say this. When I look look back, which is very seldom, which is very, very seldom, and, and i tell you why. Um, my dad used to tell us that on Sunday afternoons when we'd race um, that we could feel sorry for ourselves and we could be mad until midnight. And then at midnight, it was Monday and that was another week. And you had to look up, look ahead to the next Sunday because that's when the next race was. So in the moments that I have looked back, um, there may have been some things I would tweak, but I wouldn't change. I wouldn't really change. Um, and, you know, I'm still looking ahead. I still look out the front, out the windshield. Years ago, I was in a taxi cab going from the Newark airport into New York City. The cab driver was flying down the highway, switching lanes like he was in a video game. At some point, I noticed that he didn't have any rearview mirrors. This concerned me. I asked the driver about it, and he sort of waved at everything behind him, and he said, that is in the past. Kyle Petty tries not to live in the past. He can't shed all of it. His son is back there, eternally 19 years old, and he wants to remember that. He's done a lot of amazing things that he'll be able to savor when he's an old man. But in general, being a Petty, Kyle Petty has kept his foot on the gas, accumulating new experiences, from a Grand old Opry to a second chance at fatherhood. It doesn't make sense to live without rearview mirrors. But I would say a lot of us spend too much time staring at them, dwelling on our regrets. As much as we like to change them, well, 
they're in the past. Better, I think, to be more like Kyle Petty. Onward. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our producer is Joni Deutsch. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where each episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.